Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. This is Joy Clark, and today on the Case Podcast, I'm going to be talking to Vaughn Vernon about domain-driven design. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joy. Thank you for setting this up. Um, so my first question is a kind of a broad question. So what is domain-driven design? Well, <laughs> domain that's a broad question. Domain-driven design is an approach to software development mm -hmm. that emphasizes strategic design. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's also the means to use uh, tactical design, So, mm -hmm. but think of uh, strategic design more as like the broad brush strokes of, mm -hmm. a, of a thick brush with a lot of paint on it, mm -hmm. maybe, and, um, and tactical design as uh, using a very fine brush with, you know, for the details inside. And so strategic design is looking at what is uh, a core initiative, software initiative for the organization, mm -hmm. um, and how you can leverage uh, software design to, in essence, do the most important thing for the organization, or one of the most important things, and uh, to really get into the model to the extent that everyone involved in the project has a better understanding and, and the means of learning more as they uh, sort of, you know, dissect and, and and uh, learn more about the the domain, then actually they're achieving a better result than any one person could imagine mm -hmm. in their mind. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. So, um, kind of a personal question: What was your journey to domain-driven design? Why did you become interested in it? Well, you know, I I, I suppose it depends on who you ask, but um, I kind of got into domain-driven design, I suppose, before it had a name. Mm -hmm. I'm not claiming to be in any way the sort of inventor or, or author of DDD. Uh, that's Eric, clearly, Eric mm -hmm. Evans. But um, I was doing a lot of things that were very DDD-like uh, since the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, I'm not going to say that my journey was anything like Eric's. I know that we were working in the in different domains, but uh, we were both small talk uh, programmers. Oh, okay. And and I think that a lot of this uh, pattern thinking came out of small talk and, and, um, and a lot of the kinds of problems that were being solved were being solved with the the ideas that were being used in in small talk. So that's probably um, one reason, but the other is that uh, as teams mm -hmm. that, that I was working with, we were very, very keen to drawing out the um, the in, you know the, the mental model of domain experts. We were working with them, and we were very, very concerned with naming. Mm -hmm. So we were using CRC cards. Um, which is, uh, well, <laughs> it's class responsibility collaboration okay. or collaborator, where you basically just use an index card and you write the name of a class on it. What is the responsibility mm -hmm. of this class and who do I, what are the other classes that I can collaborate with? And so you end up having sort of a, a map, on, you know, on a table that might even remind you of user story mapping or maybe mm -hmm. even a little bit like... Uh, um, 
uh, event storming, not really, but in other words, you've got these, you know, cards spread all, all mm -hmm. over a table and you're, and you're basically saying, okay, I can pick up a card and play the role of this, of this class that's mm -hmm. written on a card and I can have a conversation with someone else who's playing a role in, mm -hmm. in this card. And so, you know, it was, it was like a means to um, understand the, the model better. Mm -hmm. This is something that uh, Rebecca Werfsbrock was, was using I think um, I think I learned about it because of the work that Ward Cunningham and and uh, Kent Beck were doing. I think that's where mm -hmm. it originated. But so yeah, I was doing things like that. And so when I finally got you know to the point where I was reading Eric's book, I was just <laughs> thinking, man, this is this is it. This is what I've and 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 even better, it's not even what. I knew about, but it now gave me a way to talk about it to okay. other people because mm -hmm. I would have conversations and frankly, the way software development going was going in, in, uh, you know, the new millennium and, you know, mm -hmm. 2000, 2001, whatever, it, I felt that software development was just going completely in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And I would have these, you know, sort of conversations with people that, that led nowhere because you know they they look at you like you're like you don't have a clue you know and yet you're because things were all moving crud you know mm -hmm. anemic model people just believed that this was the way to go and there was this movement around no design and so no design led to really bad design so so no yeah, design's not a yeah, thing so, uh, i guess i'm <laughs> rambling a bit but yeah that's that's sort of what led me to it so you wrote the two books, uh, Implementing Domain-Driven Design and Domain-Driven Design Distilled, um, and you wrote some other books as well, but uh, did you have a specific goal in mind when writing those books to fill kind of a gap that wasn't there, or was it just... Yeah, so um, people love Eric's book. I love mm -hmm. Eric's book. It's, it's a marvelous book, I think, and uh, it's, it's extremely well-written. I always say that Eric would be like the most likely to be a New York Times bestseller mm -hmm. under a pseudonym, you know, so he, I think he's a very great writer. But for whatever reason, um, depending, I guess, on the maturity level of the developer who's reading this book, they don't necessarily really get how to put it into practice. Mm -hmm. And so my goal was to say, okay, if this is what I want to do, and this is what I want other people to do, then I need to teach them how to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's really just the goal that I had, was to make DDD approachable. And frankly, the distilled book came along after the red book because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I get some, I read some reviews on the red book and they say, you're too long-winded, you're, <laughs> you know, the, you're, you could have done without these explanations, we didn't like the cowboy jokes, or whatever it happened to be. And I said, okay, so instead of taking that as like uh, sour lemons, right, I just make lemonade, or, or in German I would say uh, lemon in the Hefeweizen, right? So, um, so that's what I did. I, I said, okay, then there's, a, there's, a, there's another product there that needs to be developed to help people step up to DDD even, you know, from, from a, at a much quicker pace. So that's mm -hmm. why Distilled is there. Um. So what I kind of like, what I like about domain-driven design, and I haven't been doing it for that long, um, 
I kind of just been getting into in the past year or so. But what I really like about it is that it kind of focuses on the business, like focuses on the actual problem that's um, trying to be solved. Mm -hmm. um, and not so much on like the, the technologies mm -hmm. behind it. That's yeah. that's like a second. Yeah. That's uh, I guess secondary. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I found a bit difficult at the beginning was all of these weird words that people used all the time, like bounded context. Mm. And I was like, what? Like they would just say like in conversation, yeah, it's the bounded context. I'd be like, what is that? You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Could you maybe uh, briefly? Explain the, the main words that are always used in domain-driven design. Okay. So first of all, um, I started learning about patterns, mm -hmm. software patterns, in the, I guess it was early to mid-90s. And patterns were important. Um, I think the, the most outstanding work that occurred, even though there were more before, it was the... the uh, uh, gang of four book um, mm -hmm. design patterns and so I just really tried to think in patterns as much as I could so patterns were were a natural way of thinking for me and I and I found that it was good to have conversations with other developers based on patterns and pattern languages mm -hmm. so the way I view DDD maybe somewhat incorrectly but to me it's a pattern language Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a pattern language that drives from um, you know a strategic level and and the different tools that you have or patterns at a strategic level and then which um, dive down clear into the tactical level. Now, Eric probably has maybe a different way of explaining those these mm -hmm. days. I I think I've had a conversation with him that. That says, well, I, you know, probably back then I may have called them patterns, but maybe today I don't. I, I don't remember exactly. But to me, if I think about them as patterns, then it helps me to to grasp what is the direction. You know, mm -hmm. what what is the the sort of packaging of this of this technique or this approach? Okay. So then again, you have a pattern language that is around strategic design and tactical mm -hmm. design. And now you're going to have names for each of the patterns in the language. Mm -hmm. Some of those names are bounded context, uh, context mapping. And even within context mapping or context maps, there are different kinds of context mapping tools, such as uh, partnership and customer supplier mm -hmm. and conformist and open host service and anti-corruption layer, published language, and, and so forth, right? So you've got these um, different patterns in there, and, and what bounded context means by its name is that there is a boundary, mm -hmm. and within this boundary, there's a team mm -hmm. who is, that is working on a language, and this language is spoken, it's used in writing scenarios like BDD scenarios or, or uh, TDD scenarios that, that you can then um, develop your model from and acceptance test your model to make sure that they align with the, the mental model of the team. And this team is comprised of at least one domain expert, so some might call that a subject matter that person a subject matter expert, or mm -hmm. but it's not really a title in terms of a job position, 
but it's a role that they play because they have a lot of expertise in a particular very important area of the mm -hmm. business. And then along with that uh, one or, or more persons playing that role, you have software developers. And together, they're, they're working on developing a language. And, and, you know, there's no mystery to the language. It's simply a language that describes the behaviors mm -hmm. of the software that you're developing and the data that, that you're working with. And this can be rendered in, in a lot of different ways. The most popular way has been object-oriented programming. Mm -hmm. So you create an object model, but it could be, you know, records in a, in, you know, closure, you're mm -hmm. one of your uh, favorites <laughs> and, and uh, you know, using functions. And, mm -hmm. and so you can develop a, a model that way. Um, in fact, Eric, you know, you'd probably be interested, hopefully sometime in interviewing Eric and his experience with with closure and, and domain-driven design, and uh, so he's been—he's been working for, with that. So, yeah, that, I mean that's a boundary. And then you have, since you have a boundary, it means you're going to have multiple boundaries because mm -hmm. uh, we're not developing, you know, a, a an all-purpose model that solves every problem in the business. We're focused on a model that solves a very, very specialized purpose in the business, which means then that. Um, that we're going to have other models that solve other problems, but mm -hmm. part of the problem that they solve are problems that we, in our model, need to have solved. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to integrate with them. And so you, by, from there, you use context maps. Mm -hmm. And context maps, it, it's a mapping. Uh, really just think about drawing a line between two different bounded contexts. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the line, that line represents potentially, well, it, it always represents a team relationship. Mm -hmm. So you will have a relationship, your team will have a relationship with the other team in the sense of what are your communication channels? You know, how much do you communicate? What kind of uh, um, sort of, you know, software features can you ask for a request? Do you need to say please, mm -hmm. you know, versus when will you have this done kind of thing and and then there's also the actual integration techniques or style that we're using technically to exchange data and and you know in, in essence model objects between and how potentially we're translating um, one concept from one model or bounded context to a concept in another bounded context because if you're developing languages, mm -hmm. then two different bounded contexts speak different languages, which means we need a translator between them, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's quite a bit what strategic design is about, mm -hmm. but, but then really focusing on what is the core domain, and that's mm -hmm. another pattern is, you know, what is core, so we're not going to give uh, an investment and, and a lot of attention to models even though they're important and essential, mm -hmm. but that aren't core, we're going to put our, you know, sort of our eggs in the core domain basket. Mm -hmm. um, that's where we're going to invest and put our, you know, sort of um, more experienced developers in there and the, do the right domain experts. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that's just a way to think about strategic design. Okay. Um, and, and the pattern names. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think that was a good um, 
good explanation. Uh, one one thing that I always have a question about when I hear that, like modeling, um, I always wonder like how do you how is what does the model actually look like? Is it uh, is it just in my head? Do I have a UML diagram somewhere in a like wiki page that I have to keep updating? I mean that's kind of the thing is like I I think okay there's the modeling step and there's the programming step. How do I ensure, um, for instance? that my code matches the model that I created. Mm, I see. So ultimately, actually, with domain-driven design, is uh, you want to have the goal that the code is the model. Oh, And the okay. model is, <laughs> is the code. So you update them so, simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, so they are one and the same. Now you have other tools like scenarios, like mm -hmm. BDD, um, you know, uh, unit test tools or, or, or specification test tools and so forth that you can use to, to write acceptance tests around the model, but ultimately, yeah, the model is in the code. There's nothing wrong with drawing diagrams, maybe even UML diagrams, or diagrams that use, you know, even misuse UML, but that <laughs> makes sense to the team, right? Yeah. Um, and, and maybe you'll put those on a wiki or whatever, but don't confuse that with the model. That's, that's not really mm -hmm. the model. That is a modeling step mm -hmm. that you're taking, but ultimately with the purpose of, of implementing code, mm -hmm. right? Um, okay, so kind of take, taking my last question a little bit further, mm -hmm. um, you talked about like, um, like the bounded context and then the context mapping to kind of relate the different contexts. So um, maybe you can clarify, is like, is like a bounded context one software project and another bounded mm -hmm. context another one? Yeah, so um, I mean, I'm not gonna set a hard, fast <laughs> rule here because actually <clears throat> DDD is, is much about not setting rules, <laughs> but, but just to make sense to people who are listening, um, if, you're, if you're using Eclipse, for example, mm -hmm. I would say that one bounded context is an Eclipse workspace. Okay. And inside that workspace, you may have one or more projects, but all those projects are related to one bounded context, one okay. model. So each project may be used for a different layer mm -hmm. in the software. I don't find that it's necessary to have multiple projects, but I would have for example, let, let's just use a name like, um, like uh, pricing, okay? Mm -hmm. We have a pricing context, pricing bounded context. So we would have a workspace named pricing or pricing context. Then inside, mm -hmm. we would have one project called pricing or pricing context. And in that, I would use packaging, uh, what DDD calls modules, mm -hmm. to separate the different layers and then actually I would just have all my layers represented in a single project. Mm -hmm. I find that if you're using .NET, um, we, we could make an equivalent comparison or roughly equivalent where the, um, the solution, the, the Visual Studio solution, mm -hmm. represents a, a bounded context. But I find that .NET developers very much like separate um, projects to to create each sort of layer in. So you might have a project that is that is used for um, you know like the UI or the mm -hmm. or or the controllers, the the messaging for infrastructure, and another one for the model, and another one for um, 
application services and, and the like. So, you know, that's, that's just one way of, of looking at it. Yes, and then you have a, a Git repository mm -hmm. for each of those, right? And, and then one team that's working on it. Now, one team can, can develop a single bounded context or should develop a single bounded context, and one team can, have, can manage and develop multiple bounded contexts but you should really never have two teams or more than two teams, more than one team, I should say, <laughs> working on a single bounded context. Because when the effort is to have a well-defined, well-understood language within a bounded context, then having multiple teams in there, you would, ha you would tend to have you know, conflation around different terminology and, mm -hmm. and so forth, because each of the teams would tend to interpret um, concepts differently, modeling mm -hmm. concepts differently. So yeah, mm -hmm. that's kind of how it, how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, well I think that's a good, at least like kind of get an idea of what it looks like in code. Um, but one thing I still am not so clear about is like as far as the context mapping goes, how do you actually visualize the context map? Because you're talking then about like cross-boundary interactions um, and is it like a physical, like picture you draw out or um... well it starts that way so okay. you you would um, you would draw a map on a whiteboard or a large sheet of paper and you draw the you know sort of ovals or you know uh, ellipses or whatever mm -hmm. as your bounded context to represent the bounded context in your problem space and then you draw lines between those bounded contexts however they are associated, mm -hmm. and then you can name the, uh, the team relationships such as, um, you know, are we in a customer-supplier relationship with the team mm -hmm. that's developing this other bounded context, or are we in a different relationship, and are we using their open host service and a published language, or are we, you know, a conformist to their model? And if we're conformist, what does that mean to our model? And you know, mm -hmm. so you can start having discussions about about that. Versus, are we translating from their model to our model, mm -hmm. um, which is not a conformist, you know, but probably more like a anti-corruption layer, mm -hmm. um, where where you're you're not allowing the other model to corrupt your model with language that you don't accept, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. so then, but then, like. I would assume that that could change over time if new things come into the the place. So how do you make sure that everyone retains like an understanding about the system? Uh, in so this, in the sense of the context mapping. Oh well, um, so so for, so next step though after you draw this map yeah. right is is that you're you're going to implement in code this um, relationship or association between the two bounded contexts. And if you need to, to integrate with another bounded context in time, then you're going to have that integration. There's, mm -hmm. there's certainly nothing wrong with putting those strategic models up into a wiki mm -hmm. or, or keeping them somewhere that the team can have a visual on them and refer back to them on a regular basis. But it's all about communication, right? Yeah, so ultimately, everybody on the team you know, probably doesn't need to look at the context map continually because they're going to have well in mind the the integrations that they have, or they probably should. The map might be more useful to new team members who mm -hmm. 
who arrive later. Okay. Um, one question I have often like, in my head about domain-driven design is, is whether it's like descriptive or prescriptive, like in the sense of am I starting like from zero and I get to design my own product and then I decide to make do domain-driven design and I basically start from the beginning, start from scratch with domain-driven design or is it more like I already have a huge legacy system and I need to work with that and so I do domain-driven design with that and try to figure out what the model within the system is. Yeah, so you have to identify your problem space, mm -hmm. right? And the first idea that you start with is this sort of, you know, germination of what is strategic to our company. You know, mm -hmm. someone has named this, right? Yeah. Before the project begins, someone at a C-level or, or someone who's, who's driving business vision in the organization has seen the need for, for something very strategic mm -hmm. that software is going to support. Sometimes that actually happens because of um, a, a consultation, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe some, sometimes the company says, we don't even know exactly what, what's core. Where should we start? Um, others start from, wow, we really want to kill this monolith, or we w mm -hmm. really want to kill these thousand monoliths, right? <laughs> and and uh, when we kill these thousand monoliths, how do we go about it? And and so it, it can start at various levels, but identify your problem space, right? Mm -hmm. um, so let's just take the example of we we somewhere along the line some uh, strategic vision has been developed that, that says this is where we want to, you know, focus because this is going to distinguish us um, from our competitors, you know, mm -hmm. this is how we're going to, to, to find, you know, we're going to be the sweetheart of the industry and all this stuff, right? So, um, so you, you take that vision and you say, okay, if we want to ultimately finish with that core domain and, and implement it, what do we have to integrate with? How do we make that happen? Mm -hmm. um, where do we get, if, we're, if we have users, who are our users? Where do we get that? Do we have a, a sense in our organization of where the users are? Mm -hmm. Okay, if we do, if we have some sort of identity management you know, system or subsystem, we're going to have to integrate with that. Um, if it if it has the users, or if we're going to put those users in that in that uh, context, um, so we'll have to integrate there. What about for this or that? Um, you know, if it's an e-commerce service, maybe pricing, correct pricing at a given time of the year becomes super important, um, or or at any time of the year, right? For any mm -hmm. given demographic, so maybe pricing is the the thing which may not need users at all. The users are simply going to make purchases based on what analytics says the pricing should be at this point in time and it's going to tend to, to drive better sales. So the core would be pricing, but, but then where do we get the data, the historical data for knowing what have been our past successes in sales? What have been our, um, our sales trends? How many of these 
products have been returned over time from dissatisfaction. What, you know, so we're going to have to take this, these streams of, of data and, and analyze them, and, and that is where we'll draw our, our pricing model from. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe some other inputs. So we have to identify what do we have to integrate with in any way, shape, or form, and that's where you kind of start. And, and sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a clear, separate model that, that you can develop, and other times it may be like a, a sort of a specialized tweak on, a, on an existing legacy system. So mm -hmm. it really depends. But, but ultimately the goal is to focus your attention on a on a single bounded context per team that is mm -hmm. very important. And that, you know, again, that means different things for different organizations mm -hmm. with different maturity levels, different stages in in their life cycle. Mm -hmm. um, one one uh, phrase I find very vivid in uh, domain-driven design is the big ball of mud. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think we all understand what that is uh, in our software um, experience, but how can we keep, like we might be like doing at the, at the beginning, we're doing really well, we map out our model, we start developing our model, and then how can we ensure that over time it doesn't become a big ball of mud because some manager comes and says, I want this feature now, and... and um, how do we prevent it yeah. from becoming a big yeah. ball of mud? So that's part of what the boundary is for. So with the bounded context, you're saying that if it doesn't belong to our language, we're kicking it out. We're not, we're, we're not only not kicking it out, we're, or kicking it out, we're not letting it in in the first place. Okay. So we keep that boundary very distinct, and, and it could be that that model needs to grow somewhat mm -hmm. over time um, in terms of new concepts, but that's only because it fits, those concepts fit into that particular language, but we're also forcing everything out, and that's why we'll have multiple bounded contexts. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so to prevent the big ball of mud, you use bounded contexts. And, and that's something that organizations can leverage um, even where they, they have a few core domains, they can still always use bounded context to make sure that the monolith or, or worse, the big ball of mud out of the monolith doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. Can a big ball of mud, this, uh, <laughs> can a big ball of mud occur when you're dealing with microservices? Oh, no doubt. Um, <laughs> yeah, one, I mean, sure. I mean, because you said monolith or worse. Uh, well, monolith, <laughs> as, in, as in what I'm saying is there are monoliths that can be very well designed, very mm -hmm. modularized, yeah, literally where you have no coupling between multiple models in a single monolith. Um, you, you have um, only, you know, these loosely in, integrated models just like you would if you were in separate processes. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is without that, then you will have strong coupling across multiple models in a single monolith, that's mm -hmm. where you get your big ball of mud, right? That's where everything depends on everything else and mm -hmm. you touch something over here and that <laughs> cascades into a, an error over here. You get like here, a gopher right? that comes up and you're playing whack-a-mole. Yes. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, um, yep, and, and yeah, but then, okay, from the microservice standpoint, you know, how, how can a how can a monolith occur? 
just share the database, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, share, share databases across microservices and, and you'll have a big ball of mud for certain. Okay. Um, well, I, that was, that's mainly the questions I had about um, strategic design. Um, you've also done a lot of work with event sourcing, so I wanted to ask you some questions about that. Okay. Um, so maybe you could start out by, I, I've heard the term domain event. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is a domain event? A domain event captures an occurrence. Mm-hmm. It's a fact that uh, we have an immutable reference to, mm-hmm. right? So we create an object that represents a happening. We usually state that as a noun followed by a verb in past tense, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, um, price generated, mm-hmm. right? Price generated out of our pricing microservice. Um, so this price generated will capture the fact that for some product, at this point in time, we, we developed this price, or we um, came up with, right, this price mm-hmm. based on maybe these other factors that maybe just IDs to things that had some sort of um, influence on this price that we derived, mm-hmm. right? And so that's an idea of an event. It's, it's, a, it's a statement of fact with some data in it. And most times you want to limit the amount of data that it holds, but not always. And, okay. Yep. <laughs> so what does that actually, like, is that an, technically you save these events in your system? Yep. Yeah, so then, then you'll persist this event. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to distinguish between event sourcing and not event sourcing. Um, you don't need to use event sourcing in order to use domain events. Okay. okay you can, so what's event sourcing then? Well, event sourcing, <laughs> event sourcing is where you um, you use domain events to represent the state of your whole system, but but that state is then sort of divided up into the state of entities or, or aggregates, what DDD calls aggregates, and these aggregates have a state that are derived from their past events, things mm-hmm. that have happened to that aggregate mm-hmm. over time, and now we can, um, you know, in essence, left fold, right? Mm-hmm. That's a term you, you get. <laughs> you can left fold your events from the first event to the mm-hmm. last event that has occurred, and that renders the, the state of that mm-hmm. aggregate, right? And now we perform another operation on that aggregate it, it emits another event, and that event gets saved in the stream of events for that aggregate, mm-hmm. you know, by its ID in the order in which it occurred, and then um, then we can derive our state, our next state mm-hmm. from that, the next time that aggregate is used. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's basically it. And then um, uh, you, again, like I said, you don't have to use event sourcing to use domain events, um, but you still need to make sure that your domain events are transactionally consistent with the state of your aggregate mm-hmm. um, because you don't want an event to be captured and not that 
state transition and you don't want the state transition to be captured and not the domain event associated with it. So, and, and, and in essence, um, event sourcing takes care of both of those things in one, right? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, so is that only within like one context or can you use um, event sourcing or events to integrate multiple contexts? Yeah, so then um, one way that you might look at the pub published language mm -hmm. pattern from strategic design is that uh, we're going to publish our domain events and our domain events are a language. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're using event sourcing, you probably don't want to emit every domain event because you will have some domain events that are only locally important, right? Mm -hmm. They're only important to this aggregate and this bounded context because they represent a persistent state, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whereas there are other events that will then have an impact on other bounded contexts. So you, you can put those on a, on, you know, a topic, on an, on an exchange, on a Kafka topic, whatever it happens to be, you can, you know, to some extent, I find those mechanisms unimportant or, or mm -hmm. somewhat uninteresting in that um, they, they should simply meet your service level agreements, your non-functional requirements for, for getting these things delivered reliably. And if they do that in an expedient manner, I, it doesn't really matter which one you use. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what is actually, like how big is the event? Like, does it, I, I just don't, I don't know how to really yeah, picture it in my yeah. head, what's actually saved in so, an event. Um, so, uh, think of a command that is, okay. that is an action on an aggregate, and whatever data is associated with that command to make the command acceptable and valid and occur, right, we would want to capture all the data that was part of that command, mm -hmm. or, or probably all of it, maybe not in every single case, but, but most of the time you would capture all the data from, from that in the event that in essence, if you were to need to execute that command again sometime, mm -hmm. you could by, by deriving the command from the event, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you can't derive the command from, from an event that occurred from it, then you probably haven't represented the event correctly. Now, I'm not saying you should do that, but if you thought in terms of, if I had to, you know, f make this command occur again, I would want it to have an, enough data to make it mm -hmm. valid, right? To make it happen again, and so I would need to capture that in the event. Um, you may decide, for some reasons, to uh, enrich the event, mm -hmm. and there's a whole sort of, you know, it's it's a whole other topic. Should how, if I enrich my event, how much should I enrich my event? Um, one argument says that, you know, you should only put very limited information in your event and make clients query back mm -hmm. into a read model or query model to find out, you know, what, what's the additional data associated with this, or I might have to read an entire, um, uh, bounded context level event stream to get a richer idea of what mm -hmm. happened or what happened after that in order to get all the data. And then there's another mindset that says, 
um, that you can actually package a lot of data in a domain event because in this way consumers of the domain event um, need to see the state transfer of that aggregate or entity you know, in their own bounded context because they don't want to keep a sort of you know, partial state over time and collect up state. They want to know at any given point in time what exactly was the state of this aggregate when this event occurred. Mm -hmm. I, I can see a use for each of those, but I would sort of caution against the second one because um, if you do consume events in that way, don't get the idea that you own the data <laughs> that they're carrying, right? That they're transferring. Um, and because if you do, then you have, then you're in essence, you know, sort of causing a, a power play on mm -hmm. who owns the data and, and you really should just have one clear authority mm -hmm. of that data. Um, so I can kind of picture that in my head as long as it's all synchronous. And <laughs> one question I have is like if you're if you're basing your like whole um, application on like a stream of events, what happens if we have concurrency um, or something like concurrency and um, events like aren't in the right order? Well, Joy, <laughs> you you need to attend my talk tomorrow. Oh. Yeah, it's, well. <laughs> uh, it's what I call modeling uncertainty. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we will link, I think it will be online by the time this podcast goes live. So okay. we will link that in the show notes for yeah, any cool. more interested cool. yeah. uh, listeners. Yeah. But uh, can you give like a teaser? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so let me say this. A lot of the mindset today is... We, you know, most developers who have been developing software even for 10 or 15 years or like me, closer to 35, um, we all grew up pretty much with a synchronous blocking mm -hmm. mindset, right? Yeah. You know, call this function in C or invoke this method in Smalltalk or well, actually, I, ooh, I got that wrong. Send a message to an object in Smalltalk, mm -hmm. which eventually causes a method invocation inside the object um, or invoke a method in Java or C Sharp or whatever. And, and we know that as a client, we're blocking, right? Mm -hmm. Ooh, doesn't that feel comfortable? It's so, it's so nice. It's, it's like so I have nice. certainty. Yeah, I have a certainty. I know, that, <laughs> I know that by the time this finishes, the whole world will just be aligned. You know, mm -hmm. the, the stars are all aligned for me and everything is, it just feels so comfortable. But the world of software development is, is moving away from that certainty because as soon as you introduce two bounded contexts, mm -hmm. just two, right? As soon as you start using DDD, I mean, unless you're running in some huge VM, right? In a single VM with uh, multiple bounded contexts and everything actually can be synchronous, but you're going to have other problems from, from that. You're going to have uncertainty. Things will just happen in ways that distributed computing guarantees mm -hmm. will will happen, which is actually the completely unexpected, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, in essence, you you start building robustness into your software, mm -hmm. 
But what, okay, let me rewind a little bit. So the problem is because all these developers are used to this synchronous life, right? Mm -hmm. and, and certainty everywhere, they want to create that in a microservices or a, or a DDD environment. Well, they it's just, so much easier to like conceptually think about. It's so much easier, <laughs> right? So, but um, what you're going to find is you're going, you're going to go to a lot of effort, a lot of technical effort to, in essence, reorder events that you see out of order mm -hmm. or deduplicate events that have already occurred. And once you go to all that effort, you haven't yet solved a business problem, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You're just solving a technical problem. What I say is embrace the uncertainty and model it. There is actually a business case for saying we are in a distributed environment. Let's model the uncertainty as part of the business. And, what, and what's even better about it is when you model the uncertainty, it's not difficult. Mm -hmm. And you are accomplishing the core reason for developing the software in the first place, which mm -hmm. is your, your model, right? This is why we have the bounded context. So why not just solve that problem right there at the core of the software of the bounded context? And, and we're good. So I hope that's I think it was a, a little teaser. A little tra trailer. <laughs> a trailer, yeah. So. Um, hopefully the talk will be online so everyone can yeah. listen to the talk after they're done with this podcast. Um, so my last question kind of as a wrap up is um, what you would suggest uh, for getting started with DDD, any resources or? Sure, well, there are a lot of resources out there. Um, well, a lot more than there was uh, five or six years ago, mm -hmm. right? So you have of course Eric's book, which is the definitive you know, um, guide to what DDD is meant to be. Um, but uh, my, my red book is available, Implementing Domain-Driven Design, Domain-Driven Design Distilled. Okay, you can, you can read Domain-Driven Design Distilled in like people who are even half as smart as you, Joy, <laughs> can, uh, can, read, can read Distilled in like a half a day, okay? So you could read it in a quarter day, I'm sure, <laughs> and in German too. Um, it is but, in German now. Yes, it is. So, so you could, you know, that's a resource. I have a video on Safari Books Online. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you can also buy the video through um, informit.com. Um, and there are other books that have been written now on on DDD and and come to a conference where. DDD is is taught. Um, I teach a I teach a three day workshop. I teach mm -hmm. a two day workshop on on uh, introducing technical teams, developers mm -hmm. to DDD, and then I have a one day workshop for um, you know pairing up with with domain experts, business people, and so those are those are some options. Uh, read my blogs, mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah. Um, was there any question that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Um, Probably. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of any. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, uh, thank you so much for letting me ask you all of my questions. Sure. Um, Appreciate you uh, inviting me. <laughs> um, and to all our listeners, until next time. <laughs>